Good morning. It's so good to be with you all this morning. It's an honor and privilege to bring you the word this morning to you. So, as Pastor uh, Treg said, we are going through the great texts of the Bible, and today we would be transitioning to the New Testament. So the text before us this morning comes from Gospel according to John, chapter 1. Gospel according to John, chapter 1. So while you turn your pages or phones to that place, let me set the context for us this morning. So John wrote this gospel towards the end of the first century. And if we survey the times of, uh, of that period, we would find that it, it's a melting pot of various philosophies and religious influences and the political uh, struggles and all uh, those things. And if you if it go a little bit deep into what type of philosophic, uh, philosophical ideas were floating around that time, they're primarily the people who are trying to understand or trying to explain the existence and the meaning and the purpose of life. So various philosophers from Greek and Roman and even as far as Asian and all those philosophers are coming up with various explanations. For some, they said, you know, in order to understand this, you need to receive a special revelation, special knowledge. And not everybody can get it, only few. So that created kind of a, a, the structure of elites and those who are unlearned. And then that deviated, I mean, divided into multiple ideas. And then they came up with something like, you know, the flesh is bad and evil, and only the soul is good. So how do we... Uh, address that problem. So some went into self-denial or self-punishment and those aspects. And others went, yes, we can't do anything about the body. Let's live as, as ever we like. So that resulted in a debauchery and the immoral attitude. And then if we read the text or the, the writings of those days, they even came to a situation, I mean, they even proposed, they denied the distinction between a male and female. It's not new, it's pretty old. So those kind of philosophies were influencing people in those days. And not only that, because people were moving from continent to continent. The historians say that, I mean, they recorded that people from India went to Rome during, that, during those days because of the to trade and commerce. Uh, purposes. And along with their merchandise, they also brought religions and religious influences to all over the world. And then, obviously, we all know that the power struggle that exists in empires and between the empires. These, all these ideas did not just stay in the public square. They spilled over into the church. So the church, very early in the days, had to counter all these things. And how to address these things, these false teachers and the false teachings who are bringing these worldly things into the church and then trying to deceive people and then bring the people out of faith. So they wrote letters, they wrote books, and so they addressed that in many different ways. 
So if you boil down to all those things into generalization, one generalization, basically all these people and ideas and philosophies, they directly and indirectly attacked the person, the work, and the authority of Jesus. So those were days in which John wrote this gospel, and then he says the purpose in chapter 20. And then he says like this, these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. The question was who Jesus is. And John wrote this gospel in addressing that question. You may ask, okay, those were the things in those days. Why should we even think about that? The ideas and the philosophies and the things that we see in these days, we have become a melting pot of all these influences, both the philosophical, religious, and the political influences. Let me give you a few. The New Age movement, or you can, you can go on to think about, for example, uh, transcendental meditation, or even the Eastern influences like yoga. What are they trying to do? They're trying to do the same thing the people in the back, in the, long before they attempted to do, the same ideas with the new names. For example, Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, Roman Catholics, all these people are trying to do what? To either they question the deity of Lord Jesus Christ, the person of Lord Jesus Christ, whether he's, is he worthy of our devotion or worship, or they question the work of Jesus Christ, questioning that, is that work sufficient enough, or do we need to add something to it? to make it better? Or does he really have authority to command our life, or command our submission, or lordship of Lord Jesus Christ? All these things existed even the long before. We only see them in a different names. So we are also facing the exactly same thing, but in different, under different names. The question even for us today is this, who Jesus is? People are trying to give a different meanings and different way. For example, they say that Jesus that I know doesn't say that. Jesus that I know never condemns that. Jesus that I know would never say all those things. Or people are trying to attempt Jesus as what? A holy man or a magician or a rabbi or a psychotherapist or political revolutionist or liberation theologian or somebody who releases the oppressed from the oppressors. The question is, who really Jesus is? That is important. When Jesus was on earth, he asked disciples one day, who do people say that son of man is? And they began to say, you know, Elijah or the prophet or something like that. And then Jesus turns to them and asks them a question directly. Who do you say that I am? It's a very critical 
question in those days and a critical question even in our days. If we really know who Jesus is, we would not try to redefine him or give him some other attribute, some other things that does not belong to him. So today, in Gospel of John, chapter 1, we are going to look at that. John presents us who Jesus is. So before we go further, may I ask you to stand with me to read the word. John's Gospel, chapter 1. I'm going to read a few verses. Verse 29, and I'm going to read verses 35, 36, and 37. 29 reads like this. The next day, he, that is John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming to him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. Verse 35, again, the next day, John was standing with, his two, two, with the two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus and as he walked and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. May you please be seated. The outline for today's sermon is going to be very simple. We, need, we are going to ask three questions. Who, why, and so what? Who is this Jesus, the person, the divine incarnation? And what's the purpose of him? Why did he come? So we are going to look that in divine intervention. And finally, so what? What do we have to do with that? The proper response to that and definite or direct implication. So that those are the three things we would see today. So let us first begin with the first one, the divine incarnation. In this gospel, in this chapter, first of all, someone is introducing Jesus. So let us try to figure out who that person who is introducing Jesus is. So we would ask, who are you? And thankfully, someone already asked that question for us in the same chapter, in verse, chapter verse 9. And then he says, I am not the Christ. Then asked, what then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Are you prophet? And he answered, no. So who are you then? First of all, let's see what he does not say, and then we will see what he says. He did not say, I am John, the son of Zacharias. Do you remember the old guy? He went into the temple and became mute and then was told about a special child, and I am that special child, and my mom is Elizabeth. He didn't say that. Instead, he said, I am a voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as Isaiah the prophet said. To understand him, we need to go to Isaiah the prophet. What did he say about him? So that we will understand a little bit more about this person. Once we understand that person, then we will understand more about the person whom he is introducing to us. So that we find in Isaiah chapter 40. 
where we see like this, a voice is calling, clear the way of the Lord in the wilderness, make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. The person who introduced this introducer is God himself. God introduces this, God, this person, and he says, this is the person who will come and who will introduce the one who is greater than him. So, in that, how he introduce, whom he is introducing. So, here is the God's witness about Jesus, and then we will get to John's gospel to see uh, who he is. Here we read like this. First of all, John the Baptist, who is introducing Jesus, what he does, he clears the way for Yahweh. And not only that, makes smooth in the desert highway for our God. John the Baptist is introducing Yahweh. John the Baptist is introducing God, that we need to understand first. And then second, we will see in the same chapter about the qualities or the perfections or attributes of this person whom John the Baptist introduces. First thing we see like this in verse 9. Here we say like this, lift it up, do not fear, say to the cities of Judah, he is your God. First thing we learn from here is Jesus is Yahweh. He is God that we must understand. And not only that, here we read like this, Behold, Adonai, Elohim, or the uh, that Lord, God, that He is sovereign God. And not only that, we read in verses 12 onwards, He is the sole creator of the entire universe. He upholds the entire universe by the power of His word. And not only that, in verse 18 we see like this, he says, to whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness will you compare with him? There is no one comparable to him. Jesus, there is no one like him. No one can be compared to him because he is the sovereign God. And not only that, we read that he is not only sovereign over the creation, but he is supreme over all the rulers of the entire world. He is the supreme ruler of the world. There is no one compared to him. At the same time, we were were told that he is a shepherd. He will tend his flock. In his arms he will gather the lambs and carry them in bosoms. He will gently lead the nursing ewes. He is the shepherd. Not only that, in the same chapter, we were told that in verse 27 onwards, he is the sustainer and he is the redeemer of his people. That person John is introducing, witnessing to us. That we must understand. Jesus is Yahweh. He is God. He is the creator of heavens and the earth. He is the sovereign God. He is the supreme being. He is the ruler over everything. There is no one comparable to him. And he is the shepherd and sustainer and the redeemer. 
we must understand that. That is how John introducing us uh, Jesus as. And in that, we read like this in chapter 48 and verse 5 of Isaiah about Jesus. Here we read like this. Then the glory of Yahweh, glory of the Lord will be revealed. Let me take you through a trail to understand this better. First, when God wanted to deliver Israelites out of Egypt, he appeared to Moses in the burning bush, and he revealed to Moses as, I am that I am. He is self-existent God. There is, he does not depend on anything outside of him for his existence. And he led them through the wilderness. We read in Exodus chapter 13, verse 21, Yahweh was going before them in a pillar of cloud by day to guide them in, on the way, and in a pillar of fire by night to give them light that they may, might go by day and night. Yahweh leading them through the wilderness. Fast forward, we come to Mount Sinai. God commands Moses to build the tabernacle, and there he builds the tabernacle. And then what happens immediately after that? You see, then it, we find that in Exodus 14, verse 34, then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of Yahweh filled the tabernacle. Now you may under, ask, who is this glory of Yahweh? Is this different from the cloud of pillar and the cloud of fire? No, actually in verse 38, this is what we read. For throughout all their journeys, the cloud of Yahweh was on the tabernacle by day, and there was fire in it by night in the sight of all the house of Israel. You see, here we see first the glory of Yahweh dwelling in the tabernacle. And then fast forward, they move to promised land, but they ignore the tabernacle, tabernacle. And then what happens? David attempts to build a house for God. And this is what God says to David at the time. He sends his prophet Nathan to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7 verse 5. He says like this, go and say to my servant David, thus says Yahweh, are you the one who would build me a house to inhabit? For I have not inhabited a house since the day I brought up the sons of Israel from Egypt. This is, you see that? Who is saying that? Yahweh is saying these words. And then he says like this, but I have been going about in a tent, even in a tabernacle. You see that? The Yahweh, the glory of Yahweh was leading them. And then God says, you would not build me a house, but your son is going to build a house for me. And God says, his kingdom will be everlasting and dominion, there would be no end. And my loving kindness, my chesed will be with him forever and ever. And we know that later on, Solomon built the temple 
after building the temple, all the people came to, came to the temple and then began praising Yahweh. And then see what happens in Second Chronicles chapter 5. When they praised Yahweh, saying, He indeed is good, for His loving kindness endures forever. Then the house, the house of Yahweh was filled with a cloud, just like it filled the tent. Here we see the filth. And then what happened? So that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of Yahweh fill the house of God. You see, the glory of God now resides, dwells in the temple. But we know later on in the history of Israelites, they did not abide by the covenant they made with God. So they received punishment and then judgment from God. And then finally what happens? They would receive the final judgment, which is an exile from the land. So when the people were exiled from the land, we would ask you a question, what happens to the glory of Yahweh? In Ezekiel chapter 10, we read about that. There we read, glory of Yahweh lifted up from the temple and left the temple. Now, what happens to the promises he made to David and Abraham and everyone else? In in the, is he going to fulfill those promises or is he going to abandon them forever? Not at all. He never, he fulfills all the promises he made. So he told how he is going to fulfill that. He told through Micah, the prophet. In first chapter, verse 14, we read like this. The glory of Israel, which is the glory of Yahweh, will enter Adullam. Now, what is this Adullam? It's a cave where David escaped from Saul. What happens in the cave when he was running away from Saul? The people came to David and made him ruler over them, a king over them. What we read from Micah, God says, I am going to restart the house of David. This time, how he is going to restart? Not through any other human being, but the glory of Yahweh himself will enter into that cave. And that means he is going to build that house on his own. So in Micah chapter 5, we read like this. As for you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you one will go forth for me to be the ruler of Israel. Who is born in the Bethlehem? We fast forward to Matthew's gospel chapter 1. Son of David, Jesus was born in the Bethlehem. And about him, John the disciple say in chapter 1, verse 14, like this. And the word became flesh and dwelt, tabernacled among us. And we saw 
His glory. Because He is the glory of Yahweh. He is the glory of Israel. And they saw that glory. The glory as of the only begotten from the Father. Do you see that? Whom they saw is the Yahweh whom Moses saw. Who led, them, the Israel, who led Israelites throughout their journey. And who filled the tabernacle, who filled the temple. Now he came to dwell among us. You may ask, okay, give us one more evidence. Okay, that's not good enough. Okay, sure. Let's ask them, what did you see when they saw the glory? Okay, if they say something, we need to validate that, right? So for that, we need to know if anybody has seen the glory of God before. Of course, someone did. That is Moses, because he asked God, okay, show me your glory. And God showed his glory to Moses. And in that, God proclaimed his name. He says, Yahweh, Yahweh Elohim, passed by in front of him and proclaimed, he is gracious, compassionate, slow to anger, and abundant or full of loving kindness and truth. Let's ask John, what did they see? John says in chapter 1, verse 14, when we saw the glory, how did they see them? Full of grace and truth. See, whom Moses saw, if you trace the loving kindness and the truth, that is a Hebrew word, all the way, and then when you come to the New Testament, and then the Greek equivalent of that is grace and the truth. So whom the John and the disciples saw was the same one whom Moses saw. He is Yahweh, the glory of God. So Jesus, he is not some individual somewhere there. To think that he is just a revolutionist or some, some theologian or some good man or someone who says good things. He is God. He is Yahweh. That we must know, first of all. That is whom John is introducing us. Now, secondly, let's go to the second point. And then we'll try to understand, okay, what's the purpose? Why did he come? Why should we behold him? Why should we see him? John says that. John answers that in chapter 1, verse 29. Behold, and then what does he say? What, let's see what he does not say, or he did not say. He didn't say, behold, Jesus, my cousin who is younger to me six months. He didn't say that, which would have been true. But he didn't say that. What did he say? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In that statement, he is not only telling us why we must see him, why we must behold him, but also he is giving us the purpose and the mission of Jesus in that statement. To understand this a little bit more, we need to understand, first of all, the name 
of God that has been revealed that I just mentioned in the past. He is full of grace and truth, which is equivalent to abundant in loving kindness and truth. So what does it even mean? What does grace mean? Or what does loving kindness mean? To understand that, of course, we are we're given the definition or the explanation in Psalm 107, where we find what the loving kindness means. See, we find in the Psalm 107 people in different predicaments. For example, one group we find them, they were wandered in the wilderness, in the desert region. They were hungry and they were thirsty. They didn't find any place to stay. And then the second group we find in verse 10, here are the people who are in, dwelt in the darkness and in the shadow of death, prisoners in misery and chains. And the, another group we find in verse 17, here we find they, their soul about all kinds of food and they drew near to the gates of this death. They were almost dead to that they were in that predicament. And then we also see another group. These people are brave enough to go on the sea, but what happened? The sea turned upside down, and they have no way to be protected or to be saved from that predicament. Here, in the, all these situations, people had no capability, no capacity in themselves to deliver themselves out of those situations. So what did they do? They cried out. They cried out to Yahweh. We have nothing in ourselves to be delivered from here, to save ourselves from this. So what did Yahweh do? He showed his loving kindness. How did he show that loving kindness or grace? He intervened in their situation. And then he delivered them from their situation. He brought them completely out of their situation. And then he saved them from their predicament. And when they were saved, what could they offer to him? They have nothing. Nothing worthy of the work that he did. So all they could do is praise. His grace. Glorify. Bring glory to his grace, to loving kindness. That is what the loving kindness means. That is what grace means. So in John 1, what is the predicament we find here? That God showed his grace. So here, we, in order to understand, here John says, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Why? Why the sin has to be taken away? What happens if we don't take the sin away from the world? Just now we read in Isaiah chapter 40, right? The glory of the Lord will be revealed. And then what happens when it, was, when it will be revealed? All flesh will see it together. All flesh will see it. Everybody will see that glory of Yahweh one day. Which is a good thing, right? We can all sing and praise, worship him when he shows his glory to everyone. 
No. Isaiah saw the glory of God in chapter 6. In there, he says he sees the one who is high and lifted up. Who was worshipped, holy, holy, holy is Yahweh of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. If the whole earth is full of his glory, what's the problem? The problem is, Isaiah was a sinner. A sinner cannot stand before the glory of God. That's why he says, oh to me, he didn't Bust into praise and worship songs. He busted, oh, is me. I am ruined. I am a man of unclean lips. I have seen the king, Yahweh of hosts. That is what happens if the glory of God fills the whole earth. And that is what happens to sinners. And all of us are sinners. There is not one who does good. That is the predicament we are in. Can we save ourselves from it? Absolutely no way. Isaiah could not do it. That's why he was praying, he was crying. I am undone, I am ruined, I am destroyed here. What happens? Yahweh swooped into that situation. He intervenes in that situation. And then what does he do? Verse 7. He touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips and your iniquity is taken away and your sin is forgiven. The only way we can ever survive before the glory of Yahweh is when our iniquity is taken away and sin is forgiven. So he intervened. Now Jesus intervened into that predicament. So how he is going to take away the iniquity? How is he going to take or forgive our sin? Again, God explains that through the prophet Isaiah. And there are four songs. In those four songs, we will see how Yahweh is going to deliver us from the predicament of sin. Those four songs we find in chapter 42 of Isaiah, where God introduces the one who would take away the iniquity and forgives sin. And there we read like this. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen one, in whom my soul delights. This is God saying about someone who is going to do that work. We know that, right? In Matthew's Gospel, chapter 3, when Jesus came out of the river, after taking the baptism, what happened? They heard the voice from heaven, saying, this is my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. This is the one who is going to resolve the problem of sin. 
And we read in the same chapter, he is the creator of heavens and the earth. And not only that, what happens? He is going to be a light to the nations. He opens blind eyes. He brings out prisoners from the dungeon. He became the light of the world. He becomes the light of the world. You see? But we may ask a question. Would he really succeed in that? Is there a guarantee that he would succeed in that? So the second song about the servant we read in chapter 49, where we read like this. He would be victorious in his mission. He would completely, he will fulfill that mission. He would, he would be successful in that mission. 100% he would accomplish that work. I will also make you a light to the nation so that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. That means he is going to complete, accomplish the work of salvation for sure. We haven't seen how he is going to do that yet. We have seen who is going to do that and whether he would succeed or not, he will. Now, how is he going to do that? We will read that in the third song about this servant that we find in chapter 49, where we read, like, sorry, chapter uh, 50. Here we read how he's going to do that. This servant will take the place of the people whom he is going to save. He is going to substitute for the people whom he is going to save. Where people failed, he would succeed. Where they broke the covenant, broke the law, he will fulfill the law. Every bit of it. And he will completely fulfill it. And then takes the place of the people whom he is going to redeem. That also means these people who have turned away from God, already under the judgment of God, they, are, they must receive the penalty, right? But if this person takes their place, what happens to this person? He must pay the penalty. And that we read in the fourth song of the servant that we find in chapter 52 and 53. Our brother Al expounded that text a couple of weeks back, so I'm not going to go in details. But I want to point out to you a few things. Here we read like this. Behold my servant. Behold my servant. Who is this servant? He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. Who is this high and lifted up? John already told us, sorry, Isaiah already told us who is this high and lifted up? That is Yahweh in chapter 6, where he saw Yahweh high and lifted up on the throne. The one who is going to do that work is Yahweh himself. He takes the place of us 
And then he comes into this world and he fulfills the law and he is the beloved of the Lord and he pays the penalty of yours and mine. And about him, we read like this. He is pays the penalty by bearing our griefs, carrying our sorrows, stricken, afflicted, pierced, and crushed, and the chastening of our well-being upon him. Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Because he pays the penalty for all our iniquities, he can take away the iniquity. He forgives sin. And him we read like this, like a lamb that is silent before his hearers, like a sheep that is silent before his ear, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. That, John introduces us, the Lamb of God, who take away the sin of the world. Now, we need to ask this question, so what? So what should be our response to that? You see, John the Baptist, when he, was, when he introduced Jesus, he said, behold the lamb, and one day, no response. So, he had to do it again in verse 35. The next day, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked and said, behold the lamb of God. Did you get it? Behold the lamb of God. Now, the disciples got that. And what was their response? What's the response that was John the Baptist was expecting from people who beholds the Lamb? Verse 37, the two disciples heard him speak and they followed Jesus. That is the only appropriate response to beholding the Lamb, to follow him, to surrender to him. You see, the word behold, it's a verb, it's an imperative verb. It's a command. It's not an option. It's not a suggestion. It's a command. And, it, and it's an active verb. That means everyone must do that. And not only that, it is a second person singular. That means each and every one of us must do that. It's not a group thing. It's a each and indiv every individual must do that. We must behold him. There is no other option for us to be saved other than the Lamb of God. See, when we behold Him, we not only be saved, that's just the beginning, but we also read in Hebrews chapter 12. What do we read there? The, a great cloud of witnesses surrounding us. It's a great thing to be surrounded by the people of God. It's a great thing to be surrounded by the loved ones. They will cheer you up. They will encourage you. But that is not sufficient. Because the next verse says, 
Fix your eyes upon Jesus. We must behold Jesus to persevere in the race and to persevere in the faith. We cannot depend on any other human beings for that. Only God, only Jesus can enable us to persevere in that in the faith. The author and the perfecter of the faith. Not only he enables us to do that, but even, even uh, he helps us to persevere in the faith. We also read that in Revelation chapter 6 onwards, a great tribulation time. There you would experience, you would see the judgments of God falling on the entire cosmos. And the evil forces will be unleashed onto the people who dwells on the earth. It's a tremendous persecution, trial, and tribulation time that never happened in the history before and only happens during that time. In the midst of that, we read in chapter 7, God chooses 144,000 people. He anoints them. And then what do they do? They would proclaim him throughout that period. And what do we think about them? Would they be killed? Would they be dead? And would they be, would they survive? In chapter 14, we read how many? 144,000. Not one is lost. Do you know why? We read like this. They followed the lamb, wherever to end. Not only to be saved, we must behold. Not only to be persevered, we must behold. To be preserved and protected, we must behold. And not only that, we read in First John chapter 3, verse 3. One day we will see him as he is. When we behold him as he is, what happens? we will be like him. To be perfected, we must behold him. And in Revelation chapter 5, even to offer a worthy worship, offering to God, we must behold the Lamb of God. Behold the Lamb of God. Let me quickly finish with a word of Encouragement, caution to those who haven't trusted this land. You may think that you can get by it or you can, you don't need to care about it. My dear friend, you would also see him one day. As certainly as I am before you this morning. And in Revelation chapter 6, the people see him, the lamb. They will see the lamb of God. But this time, not to be saved, but to receive the wrath, the punishment. It is not just for one day, a brief period of time. We would see that again in chapter 14 of Revelation they would experience the wrath of God forever and ever. 
you may think that, oh, Jesus that I know is not like that. I belabor to show that he is Yahweh, whom Isaiah saw, Yahweh, whom Moses saw. This same Yahweh was there in the days of Noah when they wiped out the entire world. And only one was saved because he found grace in the sight of Yahweh. The same Yahweh was present, actively bringing the fire and brimstone and Sodom and Gomorrah from Yahweh in heaven. Never underestimate Jesus, the Lamb of God, Yahweh. But he, in these days, this is what he says in Isaiah 45. Turn to me, look unto me, behold me, and be saved. All the ends of the earth. This is not particular for one group of people. All the ends of the earth. Look unto me and be saved. I am God and there is no other. He is as if extending his arms and pleading to come to him and be saved by him. Today is the acceptable time. Now is the day of salvation. Do not delay, my friend, do not delay. We, as ambassadors of this Yahweh, this Messiah, this Christ, as God is pleading through us. So we beg you on behalf of this Messiah, this Christ, be reconciled to him. Because he alone can save you. Because he took the penalty for us. And he alone can take away the iniquity and forgive sins. So we must behold him, and there is no other option. Let me close with a word of prayer. Loving Heavenly Father, thank you for revealing this truth to us this morning. Thank you for loving us so much that you sent your son, Jesus, into this world. But Lord, we also acknowledge that the God of this age blinded the eyes of the people from seeing the glory of Yahweh. Oh Lord, may you please open the eyes to behold the Lamb of God. And those who of us have trusted in you, may you please be merciful and gracious to us so that we may behold you for the rest of our lives so that we may be saved, to preserved, to protected and perfected and one day to be in your presence and glorify you and worship you and honor you. Oh Lord, have mercy on us. May you please help us. We ask all these things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.